Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is The Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Coming up, yet another Canadian pastor thrown behind bars. Stephen Gilbo flip-flops again on Bill C-10 and a novel idea to end political discrimination. The Andrew Lawton Show starts right now. Welcome to The Andrew Lawton Show, Canada's most irreverent talk show here on True North. It is Tuesday, May 11th, 1984. And wait, wait, sorry, what was that? No, it's okay. Sorry. No, 2021. Well, forgive me for getting those years wrong. On Saturday, Calgary pastor Arthur Pralowski literally carried away by police for having a service in violation of a court order. He and his brother were arrested. Police took them down on the side of a highway in Calgary. And if you look at the footage, it's actually not clear how many police had to be there for this. It's like they were doing some raid on some heavily armed person when in actuality they were taking away a pastor and his brother. Now, he is not going away easily, as you hear. He yells that they're Gestapo and psychopaths and Nazis, terms we heard from Pastor Pulowski a few weeks back when he literally chased police and health inspectors out of his church when they were there to shut him down. And he said, as a pastor, I'm not playing ball with this. Pastor Pulowski has joined a club in which no one wants to be a member. Pastors put in jail because of their insistence on practicing their religious beliefs. This happens in China. This happens in Pakistan. This happens in Laos. This happens in North Korea. And yes, it happens in Canada, specifically in Alberta. A couple of months back, it was Pastor James Coates who spent days and days behind bars. Now it's Pastor Pulowski. And while he was later released, you can never get back freedom that is taken away from you. You simply can't. So this is now the norm in Canada, that if the pastors won't shut their churches, you can lock them out of their churches, as we talked about last week with Pastor Jacob Rayom, and you can also go even further and haul them away to jail, which is exactly what happened to Archer Pulowski. Now, before you do what happens every time I talk about one of these cases, I get emails from people saying, well, but he says this and he believes this, and I don't particularly care. You don't get to choose your martyrs, but when people are being persecuted, you can decide whether they or the ones hauling them away are the ones in the wrong. And in this case, the orders from politicians that justify this, that make this normal, that make this in some way upholding the rule of law rather than spitting on the rule of law, they are the ones that must be hauled to account here, not Pastor Pulowski, not Pastor Coates, not Pastor Rayom, not Pastor Hildebrandt. I don't need to agree with anyone theologically to realize that their rights are being violated. I don't need to join the church to stand up for the church because an attack on a church and an attack on a pastor is an attack on all churches. It's an attack on all mosques, all synagogues, all temples, all gurdwaras. It's an attack on all religious liberty, which means it's an attack on the very fundamental freedoms of this country. For the people that were looking at this video and cheering on the police, 
What the hell is wrong with you? What is wrong with you? This is not what a society should strive to be. In fact, this is what people in societies risk their lives to fight against. It is this sort of overreach that people will fight against to form new societies that protect and preserve freedom. And Pastor Archer Pulowski knows this all too well. He grew up on the other side of the Iron Curtain. He knows what it's like to live under tyrannical rule. He knows what it's like to live under a communist dictatorship. And well, even with what's happening here, I don't stack up Canada in the same ranks as those dictatorships. I also realize why for someone who's lived that life, it all looks too eerily familiar for him. At one point not that long ago, you had people from Poland fleeing to the free world, and now you have Christians that will be fleeing to Poland. Not talking about Archer Pulowski specifically, but in general. And here's the thing. This is one more example of how protest is only selectively allowed under the law enforcement regime we have right now. Calgary police send out a statement announcing its enforcement of this court injunction in which they said this, it is important to understand that law enforcement recognizes people's desire to participate in faith-based gatherings as well as the right to protest. However, ah, here's the rub. As we find ourselves in the midst of a global pandemic, we all must comply with public health orders in order to ensure everyone's safety and well-being. When Black Lives Matter protests were taking place last summer, it was all fine because they had a moral worthiness to their cause in some people's eyes. But if you want to protest the order saying you can't have church by having church, well, we are going to haul you away. Now, here's the thing. A lot of people laughed last week when I had said that Trinity Bible Chapel had been on the receiving end of $50 million in fines. I actually don't have as much of a problem with that as I do with what happened to Pastor Pulowski, with the reason being that if you get fines, you don't have to pay them until you've exhausted all your options. You can fight them. You can appeal them. You can do all of this without actually losing anything. If you've been arrested... Or in the case of Trinity, if your church doors have been locked on you, you cannot get that back. You can have it restored in the sense that, yes, you can be allowed back into your church, or in Pastor Pulowski's case, he can be sent away from jail and sent back home on bail, as happened that weekend. But what you can't do is reclaim what was lost. When that liberty is taken, it is gone forever. And the best case scenario, the best thing you can hope for is a recognition from some court that, yes, your rights were in fact violated. Well, let me tell you, you don't need a court to tell you that religious liberty is being violated when pastors are being hauled to jail for daring to practice their religion, for daring to assemble as Christians have for 2,000 years. But the problem with this, to go back to Ontario for a moment, Trinity Bible Chapel, Church of God in Elmer, and another one that I haven't focused on on this show as much, which is the Wellandport United Reformed Church in Niagara region, those three have constitutional challenges against the Ontario government. Those will be heard in October, which means that we are looking at six months from now, not six months from when the issues first started, six months from now, before they will be able to have their day in court and make their claim that the government has violated their constitutional rights. Six months from now. And some of these cases have gone back, by the way, to the very beginning of the pandemic, almost a year ago. So it will have been 18 months since some of these violations started 
before they can even make the pitch in court. And as I know firsthand, even after you've had that hearing, it's still a significant delay to actually get a result on this. And yes, you want to do it right. But justice delayed is justice denied. So the fact that it takes so long to have the day in court to make the case before the government and then perhaps get a finding that, yes, your religious liberty was violated, is why it's so dangerous to look at interim measures and injunction measures that are being used quite routinely now to violate people's rights pending the outcome of larger cases down the road. And this is monumental. If provinces start to go systematically and realize that there's now a framework and there's now precedent because of what happened in Alberta, what happened in Ontario, there's now precedent to start locking church doors and locking up pastors. And anyone who cheers this on is ignorant of the fact that when you allow this or celebrate it, such as the case may be, you are not just supporting a targeted measure on one person on one church you are supporting something that will take away your rights and freedoms. Not if, when. You know, I mentioned earlier that you don't get to choose your martyrs. And I, I want to make it clear, I'm not making a judgment call about any of the people involved in this. I, I'm saying that I don't think people, particularly Christians, should be nitpicking about this theological belief or this past controversy when that takes away from what is happening and what is demonstrably happening in front of our very eyes. And lots of Christians, by the way, Christian churches have been saying, well, you know, these people shouldn't open. We can do our service by Zoom, so why can't they? That's fine. But I want that dialogue to take place between churches and among Christians. I don't want it to be a government-led dialogue. And that's the whole point here, is that the government is trying to position, and a lot of people, by the way, in the media are trying to position anyone who protests these lockdowns as being fringe, as being a particular type of person. And this is something we heard from Calgary Mayor Nehed Nenshi just a few days ago. Those people at those anti-mask protests, let's not kid ourselves. They are people who are marching in thinly veiled white nationalist supremacist anti-government protests, and they don't deserve that kind of sympathy. Wait, so people who don't want their businesses shut down or their churches shut down or their livelihood taken away are thinly veiled white nationalists. Okay, so minority-owned business owners that don't like being told what to do, they're just white nationalists as well. Okay, that seems a little bit weird. And then he says that they don't actually care about their livelihood, their well-being. He says these are not people who are protesting because they need to eat. No, they're just white nationalists, supremacists, evil, racists, all of this stuff. This was a comment that was echoed by NDP leader Jagmeet Singh, similarly without any evidence or basis. Uh, yes, I do think that there is uh, an ex connection with people who, who aren't wearing a mask or who aren't following public health guidance and the extreme right and the idea that folks in the extreme right don't care about people around them, uh, aren't concerned about the safety and well-being of people generally their neighbors and an extreme right that kind of ideology is connected with not really caring about the people around you um, it's um, a selfishness where personal 
interest takes over from a community protection and interest. So now anyone who's not wearing a mask or is protesting is an extreme right-wing ideologue. And again, they're, you know, racist, nationalist, white supremacist types, all of that. One of the interesting things I, I've seen, just as an aside, is how much of a coalition there is against lockdowns between people on the right and people on the left. I've seen a lot of, you know, hippie, new agey types that are finding this egregious. I've seen a lot of middle-class, moderate liberal types that are against this. I've seen people on the right who are. So the fact that this is something that we can pigeonhole into one side of the political spectrum and at that fringify, if I can coin a term here, I'm sure it, actually someone else has used that term in some context before, is actually quite despicable. But what's happening here is politicians who have committed themselves to big lockdown, capital B, capital L, actually maybe capital B, capital S, but I digress. These politicians are really reframing it. They're redrawing the battle lines. You're either with the state or against the state. You're with the state powers or against the state powers. But the way they frame it is you're for health or you're not which is a gross misrepresentation of what it is that people who oftentimes are protesting against restrictions are actually advocating for. And, you know, some people might not agree with this, but in my experience, a lot of the most conscientious people when it comes to health have been business owners who are against lockdown. They're not against lockdowns because they are COVID deniers. They're against lockdowns because they don't think it's fair to sentence a business to death because of a risk that can be mitigated through proper measures and adaptations, which business owners are willing to do, which a lot of churches are willing to do. But now if you don't go along with big lockdown, you are just a white nationalist, supremacist, racist type. And you know what? At least they're being honest about it. At least they're being honest about that being how they see the world and anyone who disagrees with them. We've got to take a break. When we come back, more of The Andrew Lawton Show. Stay tuned. You're tuned in to The Andrew Lawton Show. Welcome back to The Andrew Lawton Show. I apologize if this is sounding a bit repetitive now, but I want to talk about Bill C-10 a little bit more. And one of the big reasons is because every couple of days it seems to change when Stephen Gilbo does an interview and colossally steps in it or offers a bit of unintentional honesty about what the Liberals are trying to do. Now, this bill is still going through committee review. They're still amending and going back and forth. And in fact, even the <laughs> most recent development is, I think, a bit of a step in the right direction in that MPs agree it's time to do a legal review of it to make sure it is consistent with the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, which technically I think think has freedom of expression in it, although I may need to uh, check the most recent version. Perhaps they're amending that on a daily basis too. But the interesting thing is that it went from uh, having user-generated content exempt to then not exempt to then exempt again that uh, Stephen Gilbo said. And then he did an interview on CTV's question period in which Evan Solomon uh, gave him the gears. And he talked about, again, going after individual content creators. I want you to watch. It's a long clip. It's about two minutes. But I but I want you to take a look at it because in that clip, you see kind of how difficult it is for him to claim on one hand that users are not going to be targeted and on the other hand, start talking about thresholds. I, but do you understand if the CRTC is regulating discoverability of Canadian content on social media, that is regulating social media. You are now calling user-generated content 
programming, and so it's subjective. Like this is the fundamental debate. I, I, am I, I feel like we're driving past each other here. If the CRTC can put that, you're regulating it. You have, as, as I said, individuals are exempt from 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 from, the, from, from this law, or will be once it once it's adopted, and. What, what, we, what we want to do, this law should apply to people who are broadcasters or who act like broadcasters. So if, if, if you're, you have you, uh, YouTube, uh, YouTube channels with millions of viewers and you're deriving revenues from that, then at some point the, the CRTC will be asked to put a threshold. But we're, we're talking about broadcasters here. We're not talking about everyday but, citizens posting stuff on, but, on, their, on, on their YouTube channel. It has to have a material... I mean, the criteria here, I think you're looking for it, it has to have a material impact on the Canadian economy. That's, that, but, that's but, what we will ask the CRTC to, to look for. This, but this, you nail, this is the nub. People who are posting things on YouTube or TikTok or Instagram, they have hundreds of thousands of followers. So I, I and now you're saying, okay, at some point there is a threshold and they're generating content. Of course they are. They're generating revenues. They're selling ads all over the world. That's how they make money on TikTok and YouTube. That's my question. At what point, what is the threshold that they will be subjected to CRTC regulations? You've admitted they will be. Now we're just debating when. So I ask you again, when? Well, obviously, this is why we have a body of experts like the CRTC to make those determinations. It's not up to, to politicians to, to decide that. We've deliberately decided to depoliticize this system so that governments come, come and go, but these experts are, are there and, and they will be making this, this determination after having consultations with organizations of different opinion on, 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 on the subject matter. And then this was, by the way, an interview he was doing to try to clean up the mess he had created on this. And then later on, he needed to issue a statement to clean up the mess he created in the interview. And his office said that he used unclear language and further said that all regulations or financial obligations will only apply to the platforms. Accounts run by individuals still fall under the category of people. And then uh, Rachel Aiello from CTV had said, well, hang on, how is he talking about people being regulated in the interview? And they said he could have been more careful using his words in order to reflect what the bill does. So there are a lot of problems here. Number one is the outsourcing of the individual regulations to the CRTC. So the, the problem there is that if C-10 passes, you don't even entirely know what it's going to be doing because the regulations are going to be made by a much less transparent and much less accountable body down the road. So you're passing a law that gives a carte blanche in a lot of ways to regulators. The other part of this is that if you make money from it and you're an individual, well, you're a business. You're a business and I could be a, you know, some influencer on TikTok, probably not a good one, but I could try. And if I make money, even if it's a couple of thousand dollars a month or maybe a couple of thousand a year or maybe 500,000 a year, who knows? And I set up my taxes and finances in a way that makes sense. Does that make me a publisher? I'm still an individual with an account. Does that mean I have to do, you know, a random uh, number of Canadian jokes per hour that the government says to ensure CanCon? Are they going to start cracking down on content? You can't regulate platforms or so-called publishers without regulating the users who post on those platforms. And an individual who runs a website that has any monetary component 
is someone who is engaging in business. So I'm not buying this distinction that platforms run by people are going to be the issue. They are, are they talking about sole proprietors, corporations, individuals? I mean, again, the, the reason this is so dangerous is because they're not even being fully transparent with what they want to do. So you have to assume that they will crack down on any content that has a monetary component to it, which means if you click that little checkbox on YouTube or Facebook that says, yes, put some ads in this and give me a, a few bucks here and there, you are going to be subject to regulation. And the implications of this for content providers outside of Canada that Canadians like are significant. It's one thing if someone is posting on YouTube or Facebook and those platforms themselves have agreements with the Canadian government, which is in and of itself dangerous. But what about some website that I might want to go to from the Czech Republic or from Japan or something else? Those countries are not particularly relevant. It could be any country. What happens? Are those websites going to be blocked? Are they going to be subject to regulation if a Canadian wants to access it? The whole point of the internet is, it, is that it's supposed to be above these, you know, Westphalian state-based regulators. But that's not what's happening here. So Stephen Gilbo wants to take this Canadian lens to regulate the entirety of the internet, which will only penalize Canadians who happen to be using social media for personal or for professional reasons. And the fact that the liberals keep flip-flopping on this, the fact that every time he does an interview, he seems to reverse the intent of this bill is exactly why, as I've said time and time again, these are not the people who can be trusted to regulate what you can say and what you can post and who can post online. We've got to take a break. When we come back, we will be talking about political beliefs and should they be protected in human rights law. That's up next here on The Andrew Lawton Show. Stay tuned. You're tuned in to The Andrew Lawton Show. Welcome back to The Andrew Lawton Show here on True North. We talk about stories all the time of people being fired or cancelled or losing some appointment or subjected to some form of punishment that is oftentimes very real to them, and the rationale behind it is that they believe the wrong thing. And interestingly enough, in human rights law in Canada, people have protections for virtually every aspect of their identity imaginable, except for one, and that is their political beliefs. Bruce Party, who is a fantastic lawyer, a law professor at Queen's University, and you may remember him, he was a great panelist on our Big Tech censorship panel a few weeks back, had given some remarks on this to the Canada Strong and Free Conference, which he synthesized into a, a very great essay in the National Post. Bruce Party joined me now. Good, always good to talk to you, Bruce. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me, Andrew. Now, you note in your uh, column here that there are protections for sexual identity, gender identity, uh, gender. In, in fact, in Ontario, even creed is protected. It seems like, as I mentioned, every aspect of one's identity imaginable, but beliefs haven't made it into any province's uh, protected human rights grounds. Well, actually, there are several provinces that do list it in their human rights codes as a protected ground of discrimination, but it really hasn't amounted to much. And you'd be pretty hard-pressed to say that political beliefs are, are really genuinely, robustly protected anywhere across the country. 
Yeah, you mentioned something that I, I wanted to read here. You said the baker must serve the transgender woman because his private shop is a quasi-public space, but he can ban the guy in the MAGA hat and Twitter can censor right-wing speech because, after all, private businesses are private. It does seem like we have a, a very significant double standard in when we say that, no, it's your business, you can do what you want, and when we say, oh, no, 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 if you open your doors to the public, you have to treat yourself like the town square. That's right. You know, and you'll hear this argument all the time with respect to the big tech companies, right? So uh, Twitter, for example, is a private company, and so therefore it should be able to censor whatever views it likes. Well, okay, but if you're going to go with that, then that theory, if you extend it, means that the baker can serve anybody they like, and the, and the hairdresser can serve anybody they like, and so on down the line. So what I'm trying to get at is... Let's have it one way or the other. Either everybody is protected or everybody is free to choose as they wish. And the problem we have right now is it's, it's, it's some of one and some of the other. And the sum of one is almost inevitably favoring and protecting those causes and identities championed by the left. And the right is hung out to dry. And they often do it to themselves, too, by saying, well, we believe in freedom to do what you want. And I agree. I agree with that. I think people and companies should be able to choose as they wish. But the problem is that that's not what we have. And we have no prospect of getting there. And so the question remaining is, do we extend the protection to political beliefs or do we just leave things in the mess that they are? Yeah, you have identified this gap here. You've identified the double standard. And from that, the choice we have is either expand these protections to include political beliefs or strip away all of the other ones as they pertain to what people can do and, and who people associate with and who people sell as customers or sell to as customers. And is your ideal version, though, that one, which is we actually kind of scrap the whole thing? Oh, yes, that would be my ideal. My idea, so human rights began, it's, a, it's, a, it's an excellent idea, right? The idea is that people should be protected from an overbearing state. I mean, we don't want people being thrown in jail arbitrarily or being subject to torture without due process in terms of, 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 of you know, prosecutions and so on. That's the, where the idea of human rights originates. And it's a really great idea, but the problem is that modern human rights have morphed into this other thing wherein some people can impose upon other people to recognize and validate their identities and beliefs. And yeah, we'd be better off without that version of human rights altogether as far as I'm concerned. But the political problem is that's not gonna happen. There is no political party of any political stripe with the guts to take that step. And so what we're left with is do we want to extend protection to political beliefs that right now are being subject to an awful lot of, of punishment? One of the, the things I've always found about uh, human rights commissions is, is that inherently they have to create some sort of a hierarchy of identity groups. I, I mean, one of the most notable examples, I think it was a year or two years ago in, I want to say Windsor, there was a, a waxologist from some salon that uh, didn't want to wax a, a transgender uh, customer. But the reason was that the waxologist was a Muslim. So all of a sudden you have 
her religious rights to not have to wax a man's genitals and the transgender person's rights to be recognized as in fact a woman. And in these cases, there's no right answer once you make the government the arbiter of this. The right answer, I would say, is, well, the transgender person should go to a business that wants her business and the waxologist should be able to say, I don't want your business. But we as a society do not want to have these discussions on our own. It seems like people have just welcomed in the government to be the arbiter in every single disagreement. That's exactly right. Exactly right. And you'll notice that those cases that involve waxologists and, and transgender customers are actually avoiding the more basic problem. According to the logic of the human rights codes, as soon as a waxologist says, well, I don't want to do not forget the transgender question. I don't want to wax men. I'm a woman. I don't want to wax men. Maybe it's because I'm a woman. Maybe it's because I'm a Muslim, but I don't want to wax men. Now, before you even get to the transgender problem, that's discrimination. Hmm. On, the, on the face of the human rights code, that's discrimination. You're not supposed to be able to discriminate on the basis of sex or gender. So it's, it's, it's a, there's a lot of, of, of left hand, right hand, not really telling the truth about these things. Because if you extended the logic to all cases, then we would all be locked down in terms of the choices we were able to make. Now, one of the arguments I, I've heard in defense of some of these is that, you know, it's important to protect race and sex, but uh, not political beliefs, as an example, because one is a choice and one's not. But we also do see protection, you mentioned earlier, in a very narrow way of political beliefs. Ontario protects creed. Generally, religion is protected. So things that are choices do have some level of protection under the current arrangement. Well, let's go further. I mean, there are other kinds of choices that are fully protected, and quite clearly so. So let's go back to the transgender question. If you were born a man and decide that you believe that you're a woman, that's protected because that's a listed ground that, that, uh, of, of discrimination. If you are a, a, a member of a particular religion, you believe in that religion, that belief is protected. These are no more inherent characteristics than a belief in a, a political ideology. And to say that a political ideology is, well, it's just a belief and therefore it's not inherent and therefore you can change it, is to suggest that, oh, well, we can require you to change the central propositions of your political or philosophical beliefs. That, that's, that's no more reasonable than expecting somebody to be able to change their religious beliefs. And that's something that we would not require them to do. And your point's a valid one, which is that if we can't strip this all away, if we can't get politicians to stand up and realize that we are robbing people of, of their right to run their business the way they want to, to live their life the way they want to, then we have to go the next step and say, all right, well, let's talk about real protection. And a lot of people would roll their eyes at this, but there is a, there's voluminous evidence that people with conservative beliefs face discrimination in a multitude of areas. In academia, you mentioned mm -hmm. a couple of cases cases, in uh, the private sector, in all sorts of areas. So yeah, if you want to talk about protecting minority views, well, it doesn't get much more minority than a conservative on a university campus. You're not kidding. That's absolutely true. And it happens all the time now. It's happening all the time. And in, in many, mo most cases, people are not aware of. You'll see the occasional case written about in the paper or so on. And, and those are those are serious and wrong. But there's a whole lot of things happening that people don't see. Um, let's say this though, 
one of the objections to this idea is that the whole thing will become totally unmanageable, unwieldy. The, the restrictions would be placed upon on, on the, in, into the lap of employers would be untenable. And, you know, in a way that might turn out to be true. But my point is, look, if that turns out to be true, if that makes the whole regime so untenable that it sort of collapses under its own weight, that's a good thing, right? So, so either way, it's a win. Either it works and, and political beliefs are actually protected or it extends the human rights code idea to such an extent that the whole thing sort of collapses. Either one of those two things is a win in my books. Yeah, you raise a, a great point. Conservatives should actually be on the front lines of trying to expand these commissions' powers just to bring a, bring about attention to how absurd a, a lot of them are. I just want to pivot very briefly here, uh, Bruce, because we've been talking on the show for weeks now about Bill C-10, which is the uh, bill that will uh, put the internet and internet content under government regulation. Your perspective on this one I, I'm curious about, because we know that the Federal Human Rights Act doesn't deal with uh, you know what you do in your own business for the most part, but it does deal with federally regulated areas. And one of those is a very key, which is the internet. And that was where years ago there was section 13, which regulated internet speech. Is there a direct connection that we can draw between Bill C-10 and a lot of these things that you're talking about in a provincial context at the federal level with the online harms bill or online hate speech bill that uh, Stephen Mm -hmm. Gilbo is talking about wanting to introduce any day now? Yeah, the problem is that the, that the that the bill C10 as it is currently constituted and probably the the bill that hasn't arrived yet that you just mentioned will not be quite so straightforward as to simply ban discrimination in the way that I'm talking about. What it does instead probably will be to give a federal agency the power to make arbitrary decisions about what's okay and what's not okay. And so that's that's the worst of all worlds. Not only do you not have a list of criteria, you have taken the power of speech away from people and given it to the government to supervise. You know, that's that's just bad news all around. Wow. Well, I appreciate your voice on these matters always. We'll have to have you back on once we see at long last the text of this online hate speech bill. Although, you know, come to think of it, I think the proper position on this is that if we never see it, it will be a good thing for Canada and a good thing for free speech. But nevertheless, we'll have you back on anytime. Bruce, thanks very much. And you can check out his National Post column about this political speech protection in the National Post. Political beliefs must be protected from discrimination because cancel culture is winning. Bruce, always a pleasure. Thanks for coming on. Good stuff, Andrew. Thanks very much. That was Bruce Party. And with that, we have to bid adieu for today's show. But fear not, we'll be back in just a couple of days' time with more of Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is The Andrew Lawton Show on True North. Thank you, God bless, and good day. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.